Well, dear congregation, I ask you to please turn your prayerful attention once again to those words that I read to you in your hearing there in the book of Second Samuel and the 23rd chapter. We read in the verse 1, Now these be the last words of David. David the son of Jesse said, And the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel. And so we read here that these are the last words of David. Now we don't know if these are the very last words of David. They could well be. Some suggest that they are his last words to the nation Israel, as he addressed the nation Israel formally. And they say that because there are uh, chapter, this chapter 24 to follow, but also when we get to First Kings and Second King, First uh, Kings chapter one and chapter two, we find David speaking there. So whether these are right at the end of his life, we don't know for a certain. Whether these words were said in private could well be. It's difficult to say, but we know it's very near, if not the last words. If we take them at face value, they could well be his last words, whether in private or public. Well, whatever the case, and though we cannot be absolutely sure, they are most certainly very instructive, but they are also most certainly very comforting to us who are under the same covenant as David was. Let me say it this way, there is one covenant. It's the covenant of grace. But it is expressed in various ways. It was expressed to Abraham. It was also expressed, we could even go back to Adam and Eve. God had made a promise there in the Garden of Eden. God has promised to save through his seed, the seed of the woman. And it was confirmed that one would sit upon David's throne there in Second Samuel verse 7, chapter 7. God had made a covenant with him, and we'll look at that this morning. Now, this chapter, and in particular the verse 5, which we'll consider, speaks of that covenant. And uh, then we'll look at uh, some of the men who the Lord blessed David with in his life. There are 37 names. There are men here, noteworthy men, men who were godly, men who were valiant in his life, who did make God, uh, who did make David great in his life. God put these men in his life, and they were a blessing to him, an encouragement to him, and an encouragement, no doubt, to Israel. Now, the first thing I want to note from this chapter, certainly the opening of this chapter, chapter 23, is that death comes to all men, both the small and the great. And here death comes to David. David is soon seeing now he must part from this life. David is going the way all flesh must go. All flesh must go to the grave. Well, why? Because of sin. David was a sinner. And David must go on the way to glory. He must go through that gateway of the grave. It is the way for every child of God. The wages of sin is death, but thank the Lord that the grave does not have the victory because Christ has the victory over the grave because he conquered death for his people and because he lives, all that believe on Christ shall not see the second death and our bodies shall rise from the grave. Everyone who is a born-again believer and of course, the born-again believer has a second birth. I was reading Mr. William Sykes, one of the SGU presidents of past. He said, well, there are many who like to quote John 3.16, whosoever believeth. And then he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And he asks, he says, what comes first? The, the second birth or believing? Well, of course, the second birth comes first, doesn't it? He says, John 3, 6 comes first. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. 
And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. A man has to be born again. David was a born-again believer. And the proof of that, indeed, is that he was a man of faith. Comes as a result of being born again. And he believed in his God and he believed in the promises of God. And they are yea and amen in Jesus Christ. And the covenant, as we will see this morning, is all because of Christ. Now David was a man, as I said, who was born again, who was quickened by the Spirit of God. Do you remember when he sinned against the Lord and against Bathsheba and against Uriah the Hittite? We find Uriah's name here right at the end of the list of the 37 men. What did he say in Psalm 51 verse 11? He said, cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. David was a man who had the Spirit of God. He was born again. God saves us. He gives us his Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 4 and the verse 5 and 6 tells us, because ye are sons of God, God hath sent forth his Spirit into our hearts, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And we are sealed with the Spirit. David had the Spirit of God and we are sealed with the Spirit of God. Second Corinthians 1.21, we read, God who hath also sealed us and given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. David was a man after God's own heart and David had the Spirit of God in his heart and David was sealed by the Spirit of God and though his body will go to the grave, his soul, when he dies, shall go to be with God. And it did go. David now, his soul, is with the Lord. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7, we are told, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit shall return unto God who gave it. Friends, those of you who do not know, when the believer dies, what happens? The body goes to the grave. But the Spirit immediately goes to be with God who gave it. Paul said, did he not? He said in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, he said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that's where David will soon be. We read, if you notice in 1 Kings 2, verse 10, I said that when we get to 1 Kings, we do see David there in these first two chapters of 1 Kings, and we read there in 1 Kings 2.10, So David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. That's his body. But when Christ shall come, he will not leave David's body in the grave, but will come forth to the resurrection of life. His body and soul will be reunited at Christ's coming. Now remember Psalm 16, which was given by David, and the verse 10. David there speaking of the Christ. Neither will thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy, and at thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. That was speaking of Christ, but it's true of David in a sense, isn't it? True of every believer. His body will go to the grave and we all must die. That's the lesson here. Great men and even great men of God must all die. But where are we going to be? What is the state of our soul? And uh, we must remember this morning that God can take us at any time. We are not guaranteed to live as long as David. The Lord might take us. We are venturing upon a new year. But we could pass this life very soon, maybe even this next year. David's body went to the grave. If you turn to Acts 2, verse 29. Peter there, he reminds the Jews on the day of Pentecost of this, when he preached to them Christ. He says, Men and brethren, Acts 2.29, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and I want you to note that David was a prophet. We'll speak about that this morning. 
knowing that God has sworn an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He seen this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ. David spoke of the resurrection of Christ. He was a prophet. And Peter acknowledges this on the day of Pentecost. And this was David's hope, the resurrected Christ, that he would not leave his holy one, as David said in Psalm 16, to see corruption. David believed in the holy one, God's dear son, that he would come into this world. And uh, the body shall be taken out of the grave. Remember what the Lord Jesus said in in John chapter 5. He said, marvel not at this, the hour is coming, he said in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice, that's the Son of God, and shall come forth, and so on. There will be a general resurrection of the just, or the justified, and the unjust, and all of God's people shall be taken, their bodies reunited with their souls forever. Now, mighty men, even like David, all must die. The prophets, the apostles, all of them have died. And uh, if they are the Lord's, their souls have gone to be with the Lord, and their bodies now rest, and they will be glorified one day with a perfect body, souls and bodies reunited. Secondly, this morning, I want you to notice that not only was David the anointed king, and uh, remember how God First of all, allowed Israel, they wanted their own kind of king. And I remember saying that God had sickened the nation of their kind of king and then made them appreciate David. And of course, we know we've seen David's life. He was very faithful right up until the end. And he seemed to have many falls, didn't he? But nonetheless, he was the Lord's choice. For the nation, and he was to be a type of Christ. He was the Lord's anointed. But I want you to notice, as is pointed out here, and as David points out, the Lord spoke to him directly. He was both a king and a prophet. And in that sense, he is very much Christ like in that sense, isn't he? Our Savior has three offices prophet, priest, and king. Now, David could not be priest and king. Because that was not permitted. Only the Lord Jesus could attain to the very three offices, prophet, priest, and king. But David was king and prophet. Now notice verse 1. But these be the last words of David. David the son of Jesse said, And the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob. And the sweet psalmist of Israel said, Now notice verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. God's word was in David's tongue, and the Lord spake by him. We're told by the apostle, God spake as he gave holy men his words to write. So here, God spoke directly through David. David was a prophet. And uh, of course, we have the Psalms, don't we? And this is a reminder. There are many, a lot of the modern church today don't accept that the Psalms are prophetic. The Psalms are prophetic. We read, didn't we, from Psalm 16. I quoted Psalm 16, which Peter quotes and which Paul quotes as well, saying that God spoke through. Also, if you turn to Hebrews 3 and uh, verse 7, notice in Hebrews 3 verse 7, In your Bibles, how Paul, the Apostle, he takes a a direct quotation from Psalm 95. And he says this in Hebrews 3 verse 7. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation in the day of temptation. Now we know Psalm 95 is the Lord's word, because it says, as the Holy Ghost saith, God spoke. And uh, 
We have those words in Psalm 95 verse 7. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart as in the propagation, as in the day of temptation in the wilderness. We often sing, don't we, Psalm 95. But that was given by the Holy Spirit. God spake, the Holy Ghost saith. And it's the same whenever David spoke in the Psalms. David says, the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. Now the scriptures are all given by God, given by his Holy Spirit. And as in no other writings ever since, the Bible, God is not spoken. God's word is sealed up. We're told in Daniel chapter 9 that the scriptures and all prophecy shall be sealed up by Christ. He shall make an end of prophecy, we are told. He shall seal up prophecy, we read in Daniel chapter 9. And so David recognizes, and he wants us to know this, he wants Israel to know that these psalms that have been given, God spoke directly to David, and we must take them as God's word. And uh, so much of Christ, as we've already seen in the Psalms. God is one, and yet he is in three persons. The Holy Spirit communing with David. Uh, David speaks of the rock Christ, doesn't he? Many times. The Lord is my rock. We're told by Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 that that rock was Christ. That rock that followed them was Christ. They all drank, he says, Paul says, from that same spiritual rock, for they drank of Christ. That rock was Christ. Something else I want you to notice as we come to verse 3 of this chapter, that the one who is to be godly, and certainly David learned this as the Spirit of God was upon him and teaching him that if a man was to be a godly leader, he must rule in the fear of God, not in the fear of man. And we can reflect upon this much, can't we? In the last, I suppose, few chapters, David has really been fearing men, hasn't he? But he has known from past experience that he must fear God if he is to rule well. Look at the verse 3. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me, He that ruleth over men must be just or upright, ruling in the fear of God. As I said, David for the most part of his life really did live in the holy fear of God. Puritans used to say, that it is the soul of godliness. The fear of God is the soul of godliness. To truly have a right apprehension of God is to fear Him. And not to fear men, because you know God is over all things. And the one being we should fear is God. We shouldn't fear man. The fear of man, we know, bringeth a snare, doesn't it? But to fear God is the beginning, as Solomon will tell us, by the Spirit, it's the beginning of wisdom. Now, what is the result of the man that truly fears the Lord? Verse 4, and he, let me read it in context, verse 3, he that ruleth over men must be just ruling in the fear of God, and he shall be as the light of the morning. You see, the man who truly fears the Lord will be as the light of the morning. Something else, when the sun riseth even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after the rain. In other words, there's nothing more tremendous, there's nothing more wonderful to have a man who is a leader who fears God. I mean, this is what people need today, surely. This is refreshing, isn't it? Just like the grass needs the dew and the sun. People today, do we not need men that fear God? This is a beautiful thing, isn't it? To fear God brings sort of a refreshing shower upon the congregation and people of God. There's nothing worse when you see ministers who are light and frivolous 
and uh, all jokey in the pulpit. And you see the people who are supposed to be sober-minded and grave, frivolous. But the man that fears God is like the light of the morning. When the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds. You can imagine a day without clouds. What a beautiful day. Now that's what a man who really fears God is like amongst the people. And David knew this. And yet sadly, at the end of his life it seemed to pitter out. And he learned this by bitter experience, didn't he? Because of his own sin. But my, when he was walking in the fear of God, what a tremendous blessing that was upon Israel, not upon his family. But the minute he starts to fall and doesn't fear God, what a great fall it was. Psalm 16, verse 6, we read, By the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. When you live with a right apprehension and conscious awareness that God is watching you, my friend, and that God is holy, you depart from evil. And you want to please that God, don't you? And, and you see sin for what it really is. To fear God is not to fear Him as a, as a thug or a bully, but it, it's, it's to have a respect for Him. To have a proper respect for him who sent his son and spared not his son, that we should not endure the eternal flames of wrath. You surely love that God. To, to fear God is to know God. As Wilhelmus Abrakel said, to know God is to fear him. If you really know who God is, that he is holy and yet he's merciful. He's, he's holy in the sense that he cannot tolerate sin and yet he's merciful. And how does he show mercy? On vessels of mercy. By sending his son to bear their punishment so that they would not have to take it. You fear that God. The psalmist says there's mercy with the Lord that he might be feared. You don't know the fear of God until you know his mercy. Do you? You can't know the fear of God until you know his mercy. You'll fear him as judge, but you won't fear him as Lord who is worthy of your life. And Paul says, does he not, if you turn to 2 Corinthians 7, 1, in, in 2 Corinthians 6, he, he, he says how believers ought not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. He says, what concourse does light have with darkness? And he says, it's not right that a Christian um, be unequally yoked. And uh, you, you be friends with the world. That's what Paul is telling us in Second Corinthians 6. He's saying, you ought to be different. You Corinthians. And then, you get to chapter 7, verse 1. Having therefore these promises, what are the promises? Well, if you separate yourself, I will be a father unto you. And here's the promise. That's the promise. Having therefore, chapter 7, verse 1, these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You see, you, you, you have a proper respect for God because he has mercy on his people and you perfect holiness, therefore, in the fear of God. That's what he says. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. The fear of God, friends, is a right apprehension of God that he is both just but he's also merciful and that will moderate and govern our lives and our relationships. And we put him first, don't we? You, you can't say you fear God and you put yourself first. That's not really fearing God. The fear of God will keep every relationship and object that we have in proper check in our lives. And this is what David is saying. The man that truly fears God, he will be just ruling in the fear of God and he shall be as the light of the morning when the sun riseth. 
even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after the rain. In other words, when you look at that man, you see life. You see one whose heart beats for God. He lives for God. He spends his energy and his time for God, serving God. You see, if a man fears God, it's a blessing to a church. It's a blessing to a nation, isn't it? It's refreshing. It's like light and life. It's something precious. That's what we must pray for. We must pray for young men to fear God. And young women, families, people to really fear God. That is the great need, isn't it? This is man's all. What does Solomon say? Do you notice at the close of Ecclesiastes 12? He says this. Here's the conclusion, says Solomon. Of the whole matter, fear God. Keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. This is the whole life. An obligation of a man. And this is why he is made. To glorify God. And to enjoy him forever. The Westminster Catechism gives that summary. What is man's chief end? It's to fear God. To know God. To know God's to fear God. To keep his commandments. This is where you'll find life. This is the real meaning of life. You see, when Adam sinned, he didn't honor God as he ought to. And really, he began to experience a spiritual death, didn't he? As well as a physical death. But the fear of God, my friends, is the fountain of life, isn't it? And it's God that doeth it that men should fear him. Fourthly, I want you to notice the blessing and the support of the everlasting covenant to David and to every believer. The covenant that God had made with David, let me say, it is all part of the covenant of grace. God had promised to set one on David's throne. And that promise is to us as well. We are all part of God's seed that was promised not only to Abraham, but to David. That he would have a spiritual seed and he would have one that would rule over a spiritual house forever, not upon earth. I want you to notice verse 5. This was David's comfort and support. Although my house be not so with God, David is reflecting upon his own family, his own life. Yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things, and sure, this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. As David, by the Spirit of God, pens these words, he reflects upon his own family. Although my house be not so with God, he considers his failure, he considers his failure as a leader, as a father. And of course, if, if there's been any success in his uh, kingship, it is all because of God. If there's been any failure, it's his fault, isn't it? But what is his comfort at the end? This covenant that God had promised to set one upon his throne forever. Now God had promised that trouble would come to David's family because of David's sin. If you turn back to 2 Samuel 12, verse 10, remember after his sin with Bathsheba, and then Nathan the prophet comes and gives him that parable of the Yule lamb. And about what he did to Uriah the Hittite, uh, not only by slaying him, but committing adultery with his wife. And uh, we read there, 2 Samuel 12, verse 10, Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised, or you could say lowly esteemed me. Thou hast despised me, says the Lord, and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives from before thine eyes, and give them unto thy neighbor. 
and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. So David, he acknowledges his house is not so with God. And there would come now this trouble. It's all part of the chastening of the Lord upon him, isn't it? Every time something wrong would happen in his family, of course, the members of his family were responsible for their own sin. But remember, as David committed sin, his sons began to lose respect for him, didn't they? That's ultimately, but it was also used in the providence of God to chasten him. But notice verse 14 of 2 Samuel 12. Howbeit, because of this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. Remember, he lost a son. So all of this has been part of the chastening of the Lord to David because of his sin. And God never promised, by the way, never promised that any of David's children would be saved. There's no promise of that at all. In fact, we know in David's life, already at this time he's lost that child who was born to Bathsheba. Then we read of Amnon. Remember he lost Amnon because Absalom slew him. And then Absalom, his life will be taken. And then we know in First Kings, Adonijah will die. And he will die by the sword of Solomon. Because he also tries to usurp right at the end, it seems, of David's life. Tries to take the throne from Solomon. But all of this was used, friends, and we mustn't forget this. By a gracious God to chasten David. And to remind us that sin has consequences. And the individuals that commit that sin, sin, are fully culpable themselves, aren't they? And we're reminded, aren't we, in Hebrews 12, verse 6, Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. The Lord loves David. His house is not so with God. But God has not taken his hand of goodness away from David. Well, David had 19 sons, didn't he? One daughter, Tamar. Three of his sons died during his lifetime. Amnon, Absalom, and then Bathsheba's first son. And then, as I said, Adonijah will soon die. And we're reminded when we come to the family, salvation is all of God's grace. God has never promised to save any of our children. There's no such thing as an inner circle of grace and then an outer circle of grace, my friends. Never. You're either saved by grace or it's not grace at all. You're not in a covenant of grace. And we know this because of the atonement. Christ only died for his elect. There's not some sort of uh, residuum of grace for those who are not elect. It's a very important thing to remember. Acts 2 verse 39 says, Even as the many as the Lord our God shall call, and those whom he foreknew, the word foreknew is to forelove. He's always loved his people. I have loved thee with an everlasting love. The Greek word there be translated to for love. God has always loved his people. Nay, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. We just don't know who the elect are. Now notice, David, his house, he says, although my house be not so with God. Now shockingly, friends, shockingly, I want to shock some of you, because I think some need to be shocked. Do you know what the NIV reads? Do you know what all the modern translations read? Let me, let me read to you from the NIV. The NIV reads this. If my house were not right with God, surely he would not have made with me an everlasting covenant. Now I hope you never step foot into another church that uses the NIV, or the ESV. And uh, ESV reads, For does not my house stand so with God? For because he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. 
If that were the case, David would be assuming that God chose him because he knew David would put his house in order. There couldn't be anything further from the truth. Let me read it to you again, lest you didn't hear it. NIV says, If my house were not right with God, surely he would not have made with me an everlasting covenant. You can't, please tell me, you're going to walk into a church that will use these modern perversions of the word of God. If you do, I say shame on you, friends. Better not to go to a house like that that perverts the word of God. You see, those translations turn around something that ought to be beautiful to us. David was acknowledging that his house was not right with God. He was acknowledging his sin. It is heresy to suggest If my house were not right with God, surely he would not have made an everlasting covenant with me. That's a heresy. That's salvation by works, not by grace. David was under a covenant of grace. And it's heresies like that and hundreds of others, including the many omissions why we must have men who stand in our pulpits, who carefully study the Word of God, and who tenaciously cling to the most faithful translation of God's Word from the Hebrew Masoretic text and the Greek Textus Receptus. It is the most faithful translation into the English language. That is why we must insist. It's a matter of principle, isn't it? Don't say, well... There's nowhere else to go. You don't go. It's not good that you go to such a place that teaches blasphemies and heresies. I hope for such reasons we pay particular attention to where we go and to who we listen to. It's not okay, is it? Because we're perverting the truth if we take to such translations. Fifthly, let us consider the covenant of grace. It was David's comfort and consolation, and it ought to be ours too. He says, although my house be not so with God, and it's the Hebrew word there, key, yet, yet. Despite this, David says, he that is God hath made with me an everlasting covenant. My friends, Did Abraham not know this? You consider the life of Abraham. We read of Sarai. She said, I go childless. And what does foolish Abraham do? He goes and he takes Hagar. And it says he lies with her. It's interesting when you read of Adam, he takes his wife. It says he knew her. That little phrase, new, is an intimate way of saying that he had relation with his wife. And the Lord knows his people. He has an intimate relation with them. But what did Abraham do? He lay with Hagar because he thought that he could shortcut the promises of God, that he could bring in the promise of God. You can't do it. God had promised that Sarai would bear a child. And she did. Remember how even sadly she laughed when the angel appeared. But God did it. Even despite Abraham's sin. It was wrong for him to do that. And then you've got somebody like Jacob. Remember how Jacob he's lost Joseph and then Benjamin. He doesn't know the whereabouts of Joseph. But there he is in Canaan. Joseph's been sold into slavery into Egypt. And then the other sons have gone and Jacob says, all these things are against me. But God was working it for good, wasn't he? 
Despite all the failures, despite the sin of that family, yet God. Don't we thank God for the yets of the Bible? Yet God made an everlasting covenant. When was it made? It was made from everlasting. It was ultimately made with his son. Father, thine they were. Thou hast given them to me. But you see, there was a covenant made with Abraham, then a covenant with David. It's the same covenant, just being renewed in a sense. There are promises. God is repeating his promise that there would eventually come one that would sit upon the throne of David. That despite our sin, you see, it's all of grace, isn't it? We're being reminded, as you look at David's life, as you look at the family, what a mess. Yet God is gracious to his unworthy children. Aren't we unworthy? They're very unworthy, each and every one of us. And these sort of themes repeat throughout the scriptures, friends. Habakkuk 3.17, Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, the fields shall not yield meat, the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the store. Sounds pretty bleak, doesn't it? And yet we read, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength. He will make my feet like hinds feet. And he will make me to walk upon mine high places. You see, despite our failings, and despite even sometimes the Lord's chastenings, yet he will not always chide, will he? He will be gracious. Because he has made an everlasting promise to his son, confirmed it to Father Abraham, confirmed it also to David, Isaac, Jacob. We sometimes sing it, don't we, in the Psalm 110 as well, and also in the Psalm 105, that these are the same promises. It comes back to one eternal covenant of grace. Let me just take you back to 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. This was an enormous comfort, no doubt, to David. That God would put one upon David's throne, his seed forever. 2 Samuel 7, 12. When thy days be fulfilled, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, and I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom, notice, forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. He, if he commit iniquity, he is speaking about Solomon. And I will chasten him with the rod of men, and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee, and thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee, and thy throne shall be established forever. So Solomon would continue, but eventually one would sit, not only upon David's throne, Solomon's throne, but the Lord Jesus, through whom all the covenant promises are made. My friend, David knew like Abraham, that this was a spiritual house, not an earthly kingdom, a spiritual house to be built up of those who were born again, those who are the true spiritual seed of Abraham. This is why Peter says in 1 Peter 2.5, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. It's all by Jesus Christ, isn't it? This was a spiritual kingdom, and the one whom the Lord was speaking about here, Christ, would come, and he did come, and he shall come again. Hebrews 10, verse 37 says, For yet a little while, and he that shall come, will come, and will not tarry. Did he not say, I will come again? 
He came into the world the first time, didn't he? To lay down his life as a ransom for many. But he will come again to take them to glory. Body and soul. David's too. Now, sixthly, notice the promises of this covenant and the outworking of them are from everlasting because they are in Christ. Notice, he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. You see, David's mercies were only in Christ. This promise could only be by Christ. It could never be by David's work. Because David's failed. And from, as we said, all eternity, God promised that David would have an everlasting kingdom. In Titus chapter 1, verse 1, we read, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. You see, the promises of the covenant were made before the world began, before there was a world, before there were angels, before there was anything. Who was there? There was God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Father promised the Son, Psalm 2, that he would give him a people, that he would give him even David, and that he would sit on David's throne. Let me take you to Isaiah 55, verse 1. And I want you to notice very carefully the context here. Verse 1 is key to Isaiah 55. Ho, everyone that thirsteth. That is a qualifying verse, my friends. Who thirsts in this world for God? Nobody. Shall I repeat that? Nobody. Nobody by nature thirsts for God. What did Mr. Sykes say? What comes first? The new birth or belief? The new birth. And it is only if you're born again will you thirst after God. Will you hunger after righteousness? Ho, everyone that thirsts, come ye to the waters. He that hath no money, come ye buy and eat. Yea, come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear, and come unto me here. Now notice, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Even the sure mercies of David. God is saying he will, you see, he's already made that promise in a sense because he promised his son. And he promises every believer that comes to him by faith in his son, God will give the sure mercies of David to that person because they are chosen. God, they're awakened, they're quickened, and God will never forsake them. I could preach on the sure mercies of David. There are at least seven points to bring out concerning the sure mercies of David, what they are. Think of it, David was a sinner, but he says, my only hope is this salvation, the promise of God, that he would send one to sit on my throne as an eternal and everlasting king. And that God would not allow him, the Holy One, Jesus Christ, that his body should see corruption. Why? Because he had no sin. Because he purged all the sin of his people who he bore for at the cross at Calvary. And you see, the fact that you believe is proof that you're born again. If you really believe, if you really thirst what made you to thirst? God. The Apostle Paul, preaching in Antioch, Pisidia, in Acts 13, verse 34, says, concerning Christ, I will give you, he says, 
God says, I will give you the sure mercies of David. As concerning he that raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. He quotes there from Isaiah 55. To those who believed, God says he will give you the same sure mercies of David. The mercies of David are only in Christ because they could be in nothing else but Christ. They couldn't be in David. It's a blasphemy, these modern texts, where David presumably says that because my house is in order, God, you have chosen me. That's salvation by works. But this is something that God chose to do on unworthy sinners before the world began to give them everlasting life through his Son. It's a promise made Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before the world began. It's what we call the election of grace, which was founded upon his love. Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. We could go on. But seventhly, this covenant is ordered in all things. Notice, ordered in all things. That is to say, it is not haphazard, but it was planned from all eternity, purposed by Almighty God. Consider it when the sons of Jesse lined up there. David wasn't there. But there was another to be called. Hidden from men. But God knew him. My shepherd. And then he was to be the shepherd of Israel. And to be a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. This covenant, friends, is not haphazard. We get the word haphazard from an old English word that means happening. God doesn't make it up as he goes along. Nothing is by chance, but everything is ordered by God. The Father chose the sheep. You think of it. Thine they were, Father. And thou hast given them to me. The Son redeems the sheep by his life lived for them, and by his death that he dies for them. To bring in for them an everlasting righteousness by his righteousness and to purge away their sin by his death. And then what happens in time? The Holy Spirit quickens and draws the sinner to himself, draws the elect, gives them repentance and faith. What did the Savior say? All that the Father gives me shall come to me. Everyone. Not one of them will be lost. Remember, Paul was told to go to such and such a place. Why? Because I have many in that city. That's why. God ordered and promised. Eighthly, the covenant, he says, for this is all my desire, all my salvation, and all my desire. It was his desire, and that should be ours. Isn't this something that should make our hearts inflamed with love for God? We love him because he first loved us, the unlovable. Our hearts should be on fire for God. Surely. This kind and gracious provision of God is what should wean us from this world. It was David's all. It was his source of consolation, wasn't it? The end of life, even though my house is not so with God. Yet he, yet God. David realized the world was passing, his life was passing before him. David realized he could take nothing with him. He couldn't take his wealth, he couldn't take his health, his wives, he couldn't take anything. David simply realized he was a vessel of mercy. That's all we are, we're saved, isn't it? Vessels of mercy. Ninthly, the promises of God are indestructible, verse 6. But the sons of Belial, or vanity, shall be all of them as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man that touched them, that is the sons of Belial, if the man that touches them must be fenced with iron and the staff of a spear, 
and they shall be utterly burned with fire in the same place. You see, because of God's covenant with David, he was fenced, as it were, in with iron, and God enabled him to withstand the sons of Belial. And it's true for every one of God's people, isn't it? We've just been studying in the book of the Revelation how the true church will be persecuted. But God says, the olive trees, in a sense, shall provide that anointing of his Holy Spirit and shall sustain the lampstands of his church. And every true believer will not lose their light. And as our days, so will he give us strength to stand against the enemy until, friends, our laboring for the Lord here is done. We are, in one sense, invincible. God says in Zechariah, I shall be as a wall of fire around you. That's it. Why? Because God providentially arranges everything. Think of the times David was delivered from all of his enemies. We read in the last chapter how he was delivered. Some remarkable ways. And we have the account here. We won't go into them. But you see, in verses 8 to the end, David's faithful men and the laborers, and, and how many times David gives God the glory, how the Lord delivered them from all of these things. How these mighty men, they were mighty, and yet they were strengthened by the Lord. We see so many instances here how the Lord, look at the verse 11, speaking here of uh, an, another one, Shammah. Verse 12, he stood in the midst of the ground and defended it and slew the Philistines and the Lord wrought a great victory. Yes, mighty men, but how was every one of these victories wrought by the Lord? 37 men, not many, but they were mighty. They were mighty instruments in the hand of God, were they not? And was not David a mighty instrument in the hand of God? Yes. So we have all the names here, certainly key men, Abishai, Eleazar, other men, Benaiah, verse 20, a noble and valiant man. And you see, David recognized them, but he also recognized the Lord's hand at work through them. And the Lord had hedged David in with these men. And he gives thanks for them personally, doesn't he? And ultimately to God. It's not by many, is it? But it's by the Lord's might. But last of all, look. You see the very last name, Uriah the Hittite. Now that name must have sent a thump into the chest of David. This was a man I killed. Because I lusted after his wife. David surely could never forget this man. In the verse 39, Uriah the Hittite, the very last name. Uriah the Hittite, what a noble man he was. He refused to go home to his wife when David said go. He called him from the battle. Uriah, we read in 2 Samuel eleven nine, slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and went down not to his house. And when he had told David, saying, Uriah went not down to his house, David said unto Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? Why then dost thou not go down unto thy house? And Uriah said unto David, The ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. How shall I then go to mine own house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As thou livest, as thy soul liveth, I will not do this thing. Now you think of it. He went to fight for David. And in fighting for him, this man lost his own life, didn't he? For the sake of David's lust. But you think of it, how much more our Lord Jesus, friends. How much more our Lord Jesus. The Bible tells us that when we were without strength, Christ died for his people and what are they? They're ungodly. He laid down his life for us. He left 
heaven's glory. He left heaven's court. While David comforted himself. Uriah went into the thick of the battle. But how much more our Lord, who laid down his life for his undeserving people, took our sin, bore our sin on the cross. Well, friends, these are just a few thoughts. David's comfort was God's goodness, wasn't it? And the covenant, despite his sin, despite what he did to Uriah the Hittite, God had made a covenant with him. And that covenant, my friend, is in Jesus Christ, the Holy One of Israel. And that's our comfort, isn't it? David could take no comfort in his home, in his family, in all that he was. He said, I have nothing. The sinner simply clings to Christ. And this is our hope. And this should be our all. It should make us tick, think, and live for Christ in the short life that we have here now. And honor him. Amen.